the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Forget the price of Bitcoin for a moment. There's some interesting things happening in a parallel lane that is getting far less attention. That lane is blockchain, and there are some fascinating developments being built around this technology. One of the key developments is central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, a form of digital cash issued by central banks and soon to be rolled out, much to the horror of many in the crypto community. The digital euro is on its way, courtesy of the European Central Bank, despite the failure of a similar project in Nigeria called the e-Naira, where citizens were expected to hand over cash notes in exchange for the digital Naira. That resulted in unrest and a hasty backflip by the country's central bank after just 6% of the population adopted what was in effect a forced exchange of banknotes for digital cash. This does not augur well for future CBDC rollouts, the great fear being that governments can track your spending and spy on every transaction that you make. Aware of the backlash, the European Central Bank's latest draft legislation stipulates that CBDCs should not replace cash but supplement it. It should also be available for both online and offline use and guarantee the privacy of citizens. Either way, it seems inevitable that CBDCs are coming whether you like it or not, and it remains to be seen whether mission creep allows authorities around the world to build a giant database of everyone on Earth. Then there's DAOs, D-A-Os, or Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, developed as an adjunct to the blockchain as a way of creating localized forms of democracy. Future voting systems might be built around DAOs. Imagine citizens being able to vote on who gets to run the country or even who gets to run ESCOM or Transnet. There's a lot to think about. One person who's delved into these issues is Mikhail LaRue, Chevening scholar and attorney with Hanacom Attorneys. He spent many years tracking the evolution of these technologies and assessing their likely impact on our futures. Welcome, Mikhail. Good to have you on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. I'd like to pick you up on the issue of CBDCs, as I know this is an issue that you have been studying. They're hugely controversial. Explain the reasons for the controversy and, in fact, whether they are as frightening a development as some believe. Hi, Kieran. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'll go straight in and touch on CBDCs and, and speak to some of the controversies there. Frankly, I don't think that they're that controversial. I think South Africa is actually in the game. You know, the game is afoot in South Africa is there. We've joined the race for determining who is going to launch a CBDC and have an effective one. South Africa has piloted a CBDC for wholesale use. And that is for the settlement of international transactions um, at this stage. Not retail use, so nothing's coming to the consumer or the user of digital assets just yet. They've piloted this asset with Singapore, Malaysia, and Australia. It's called Project Dunbar. South Africa's in the game. So, Kieran, Project Dunbar is essentially the pilot project that South Africa's used to form their own central bank digital currency. They've started with Singapore, Malaysia, and Australia, and they've essentially developed a wholesale asset for the settlement of international transactions. Later on, they would then focus on the retail segment of the market and perhaps, you know, users of digital assets like myself and the many others in South Africa would be able to access these assets and be able to use them as they would with other cryptocurrencies available in the market right now. But at this point in time, I don't think it's controversial. There are issues. There are issues with CBDCs, and that is obviously privacy. 
uh, whenever you're dealing with any crypto asset, you have to think about your information online. So as much as it seems like all things are anonymous um, on the blockchain, that is not actually true. You can track individuals on the blockchain if you have enough information, and you can follow the movements of certain assets if you have enough information. With the use of CBDCs, I imagine that at some point in time, the regulators, the state, they would like to monitor the movement of these CBDCs. And that means that they would look at users in market, you know, spending in market, and of course, the transfer internationally, if it of course comes to the detail segment where, where individuals are spending their, their monies at pick and pay and so forth. Um, that That's an interesting bit that we could focus on, but it is seemingly infringing on the privacy of the user because somebody would be able to say and monitor your spending and say, look, this is what's happening in market after monitoring your spending. The second thing is with CBDCs, we have to think about what happens to cash reserves in banks. So no matter where you stand in the market on crypto assets, banks hold deposits at present. If the unlikely event occurs where all persons that would like central bank digital currencies go to their banks and demand back the cash. Some banks would fall because it would seem like there's a bank run and that cash would be transferred into some sort of wallet system that allows you to convert to CBDCs, meaning that you would only have a digital currency that exists with the central bank and they've authorized it, they've backed it. It would sort of shave out the middleman. Highly unlikely that it would happen, but many of the reports, when you read about these things, many of the reports speak to bank runs. I don't believe in it. I think that it's highly unlikely in the way our economy is structured. It's a largely cash economy. So yeah, bank runs, not really a factor for me. It is out there, it is sort of spoken about. I don't believe that users in South Africa would take back their cash, transfer it to their wallets and sort of go into the, the CBD system automatically. I think it's the sophisticated user that might want to access these assets and those persons who are investing. And that's sort of the level that I'm thinking about. Right now, South Africa is just not an economy that does or, or has people in it that does that. So you see a situation arising where it would basically be a voluntary adoption or you won't be forced to use CBDCs. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think that is the intention of the South African regulators or the state at all. I think it's meant to support, again, the sophisticated user. And later on, we would focus on unbanked communities and the rest. CBDCs give us the access to global networks, but it's not necessarily where we are at the moment. I think South Africa has taken a wonderful phased approach in introducing CBDCs. There's this thing called zero-knowledge proof, which is a way to make digital asset transactions anonymous. An example of that is Zcash or Zcash, however you pronounce it, and that's a form of digital cash based on this protocol called zero-knowledge proof. But a lot of exchanges around the world, they won't accept these forms of digital assets because of the potential for crime. Could CBDCs be made safe for privacy using technology like that? Absolutely. Zero-knowledge proofs are quite interesting. They allow for a user to transmit data, typically they refer to it as a statement, without having to verify the identity. Or out, it is a method of proof that is associated with the protocol. So you don't have to transfer any details. You can merely transfer the asset, alternatively transfer the transaction details that you're focused on. So it's a protocol that allows for anonymous transfer of details. So you'll be able to monitor CBDCs 
the transaction flows, but you would not be able to see which particular South African is spending CBDCs, for example. Um, there are many other uses for zero-knowledge flutes. Uh, sort of a fond example is having to prove your age to an electorate commission if you're going to the store to buy something like alcohol, where age is, is, is a limiting factor. You would be able to prove your age without presenting your identification. So there is a basis to use the CBDCs with zero-knowledge proofs that allow you to transact with privacy in mind and securely. You mentioned the Dunbar project uh, involving a few countries. Is South Africa part of that? Yes, yes. South Africa, Singapore, Malaysia and Australia. So Singapore leads the world in many ways in relation to digital assets and, and cryptocurrencies and investment when it comes to blockchain technology. South Africa is sort of well-placed in that environment. And I think that there's several cross-border projects that have functioned over the last couple that we would have been involved in. And Project Dunbar is the CBDC sort of leg. I mentioned in the earlier part of this uh, discussion that the Nigerian attempt to introduce a CBDC, the e-Naira, was, was a complete failure and actually led to riots. It was that much. It was almost a revolution going on there. The Chinese also tried to introduce it during the 2020 Olympics. That was also not very well adopted at that time. I am aware of one example where it has been adopted, and that's Marshall Islands, a small little place where you have basically a U.S. dollar, which is legal tender, and you have a CBDC there. But what's interesting about the Marshall Islands project, and I haven't updated myself on this recently, but they had a 4% inflation built into that. Now, that, of course, is a, is a critical thing for anybody issuing CBDCs, like Bitcoin, for example, the Bitcoin protocol only allows ever to be 21 million Bitcoin in existence. If you're going to have CBDCs, you're going to have the same kind of reckless money expansion that you have or that we've seen over the last few decades. Or like the Marshall Islands, are they going to contain it to, to 4%? And that's written in code. It cannot be overwritten. What do you think? Absolutely. I think that there are risks in, in producing CBDCs. However, with the use of CBDCs, the way I see it panning out is that there'd be a tie, sort of a one-to-one -one pegging with the RAND. So South Africa has a CBDC. There would be a RAND that is allocated for every CBDC in issuance. And that, to me, suggests that the inflationary rates associated with these, with these digital assets, these cryptocurrencies, in this instance, would be exactly the same. So the so-called vault would be the Reserve Bank itself. So the assets that the Reserve Bank has that underpin the value of our land and all the transactions that go over and above that would, would be tied directly to the CBDC. So I find that there's lots of, a lot of security in that. We are looking at RANDs. It's just the next iteration, i.e. we are looking at foreign CBDCs. We will be looking at dollars. It's simply the next iteration of money. It is nothing that I suppose we should be afraid of. A lot's changing, and this is something that we can see in the pipeline. This is something that we're going to use in the pipeline. It is ultimately just money as we know it and issued by a central bank in a digital format. Okay, Mikhail, tell us a bit about your background. Uh, you are a lawyer. You're also a specialist in the space of crypto, but how did you get into the crypto space? I've been around in the space for the greater part of six to seven years. I think I definitely got in trading in 2017 early, trying to figure out what crypto assets are. And uh, I was sort of excited to find that transactionally in the law firm that I was involved in, it was one of the big five law firms at that point in time, 
a massive transaction came across our desks and I was just excited to get involved. And I, I looked at this from multiple perspectives and I thought, well, I wanted a career in this industry and I thought that it was the perfect place to start. So about five, six, seven years ago, I would have been involved, dealt with transactions at the international level and just started getting really good at these things, understanding these things. I'm no longer a big trader or, or speculating on markets. I'm very interested in the legal side of it and, and how it pans out and advising companies, regulators, and of course, the asset managers. Yeah, so it's been a legal interest of mine. And I think, you know, this is all we talk about when we think about the money side of technology, at least in, in my circle of friends and with clients and all the rest. And you're a chevening scholar. You better explain that. Uh, <laughs> so chevening is the, the world-leading scholarship for mid-career professionals and allows for applicants from all around the world to, to make application to the program. Um, in my cohort, there were 65,000 applicants and they would have admitted 2% to the scholarship cohort. So we've about 1,500 of us were admitted to the program and yeah, these are all individuals that would have been identified as leaders of industry, ministers, judges, and the like. In the cohort's history, they would have had, and they do have in, in our alumni, 20 presidents or heads of state across the world. So that is sort of the company and the alumni that we keep. Interesting. And I, I see there are not many lawyers specializing in the space. I know that you're with Hanacom Attorneys and Darren Hanacom has been on a few times on the Money Web Crypto podcast, and, and he does have a very strong interest in, in cryptos. And recently, we, we had somebody from Schindler's. They've actually started up an exchange for fractional ownership of digital assets. But do you see the South Africa falling behind a little bit in terms of its understanding of the legal and financial aspects of crypto? I think, to be honest, I used to think that we were slow to the mark. I used to think that the South African regulators were quite sluggish in their approach. That's purely my opinion. And that's probably because we were getting so much work about crypto assets, blockchain, all the rest, and we didn't have the legal instruments to guide us. Now we do have a framework. And I think that having been in the UK for the last year or so, I noticed that regulators, well, the regulators in the UK and across the globe have adopted a very, very uh, sort of sluggish, slow approach to these assets. So I think that South Africa is in good company. If anything, we follow the regulatory ebbs and flows from the UK perspective. If the UK is looking at a product or a solution in a certain way, I think that the South African regulator pays attention, doesn't follow them in, in, for all intents and purposes, but pays attention to where they're going. And we can see similar legislative prescripts and instruments that would have come to market. So I think South Africa is sort of on the money. It's just adoption takes serious backing from a, a human resource perspective. And then, of course, you need to be staffed in order to deal with all of these providers in market. And that's where I'd wonder whether or not we can facilitate this transition into the, the digital realm, into using digital assets, into using CBDCs, sort of the manpower element. Once we've got the legal framework up and running, it is the, the manpower element. And, and that's what I would be concerned with. In the intro, I mentioned DAOs, which are decentralized autonomous organizations. So people might have a bit of difficulty wrapping their minds around what these things are. I did say it's a form of very localized democracy where you are in, for example, 
an exchange, a decentralized exchange, where you don't have a controlling shareholder the same way you would have with a public or a limited liability company. Uh, it is a rather interesting spin-off from blockchain technologies and essentially ways for people within a community to govern the way the technology operates. Now, you believe this could be expanded way beyond financial assets. There's been talk about, you know, eventually running elections using DAO because you could do it on your phone. You know, who are you going to vote for in this election? And, and the list pops up on your phone. And that could actually be made secure. But there's a lots of other ways it could be done. You know, uh, we, we are relying on, you know, cabinet or committees to elect people to or appoint people to very senior positions in public sector enterprises, for example. Tell us about how this could change our lives going forward. Absolutely. I think DAOs present immense opportunities for, for those of us that use the internet regularly. So you spoke about how DAOs function, and I think that that requires some explaining. So a decentralized autonomous organization is essentially the organization of the future. It, it, it presents in many different ways. And like companies, it is not a company, but like companies, it can function across every single industry that one would imagine. Right? So it is a collective form of ownership where the collective demonstrates their decision-making power by voting on proposals. So whether or not this is for investments, as the organization has typically been used, or for donations to donate to a certain cause, and then once the pool of assets is collected, donations are, are sort of plugged where they need be. And then in the governance arena, DAOs are definitely something that could be used to secure elections, to in, ensure that proper voting procedures are, are, are galvanized. I think because of the nature of the blockchain, we can trust in the fact that one person can cost one vote. We can trust in the fact that votes are cost securely. And this would mean that you would need a DAO, which is a blockchain organization, um, followed by a DAP, which is a decentralized app that comes to the voter. Into this DAP, you would probably insert your details, all that's necessary for voting, and you would cast your vote via this application, which then is imprinted on the blockchain. So I do see DAOs forming part of, let's say, the electoral process in the future. And if you're talking about one of the state utilities, if it is that there are rules that allow for individuals like ourselves, members of the public, to vote for these members in office or, or, or members at these utilities, DAOs can facilitate our involvement. It is a collaborative space where the rules are defined and we would only vote on proposals presented by the DAO. So, yeah, I completely agree with you that there would be a place in time in the future where DAOs would enter the governance framework of not only this country, but many other countries. Of course, this needs to be palatable for the government, this needs to be palatable for regulators in order for them to consider these technologies as the next iteration of their voting basis. Yeah, and when it comes to electing, for example, the head of ESCOM, you could limit that to people who would have knowledge of the energy sector. So you might have a pool of two or 4,000 uh, who would be voting on an appointment like that. And the other thing about voting, it, the people probably should understand the blockchain is encrypted by a method called hashing. You cannot alter one figure in the blockchain without it corrupting the entire database. That's just impossible. So you, you can't go back and, and try and uh, you know hack the system. 
it's got interesting possibilities and in all sorts of ways, you know, where even at your local government level, you could probably uh, use these DAPs and these DAOs to start making changes that would improve the lives of people. Do you see that happening? I do see that happening. I think that these DAPs and these DAOs would become a common a commonplace feature in South Africa in the next 10 years. And this comes with a wave of other technologies, right? It's not simply DAOs. It's not simply blockchain. We're talking about this current fourth industrial revolution that's coming about. We've got artificial intelligence. We've got the Internet of Things. We've got blockchain. You know, there's so much going on. And all of these technologies are sort of leading the way humans engage with each other, the way they transact, and just in general, what it is that we do day to day. We've got the data economy as well. And I think that these all seem like buzzwords up until they become very real in your life. And that was the internet 20 years ago. The internet today is what we all rely on for every single part of our life. So blockchain is part of it. DAOs will be part of it. I don't see any other type of organization online at least, that has the secure backing of a blockchain. I think DAOs are the best instrument. It's just adoption and and use needs to be figured out, fleshed out. And once we're at that point, people would be using this the way they use every other bit of technology. And of course, with every bit of technology comes an application, right? With every new technology comes an application. And that's just DAPs, decentralized applications. All right, let's talk about tokenization. We are running out of time here, so I'm going to ask you for a fairly quick answer on this one. Tokenization is a way of creating digital title to a real-world asset. So, for example, you know, NFTs, which are a lot of people sort of roll their eyes and laugh at this because, you know, you have a a picture of a a unicorn valued at millions of dollars, and they think this is just, you know, the next biggest scam to come around. And, of course, it is because the NFT prices uh, have dropped enormously since that hype. But there is some very interesting applications around tokenization, such as fractional ownership of assets. You know, can you own a tiny fraction of – you can already do it with Bitcoin. You can hold, you know, 10 rands worth of Bitcoin. But that can be applied to many other ways, many other assets. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, the market in South Africa has really been heating up with these tokenization opportunities. There are – exchanges doing it, there are all sorts of providers offering tokenization opportunities. And and like you've put it, there's the opportunity to convert a real world asset like real estate. So converting a building and tokenizing the ownership structure, or at least a part of it, and making it tradable, tradable crypto assets, tradable digital assets for those individuals that want to buy in South Africa or, or, or around the world. There's a lot of difficulty with this, though. I think it's very popular because it is, again, the next iteration for trading assets. But we don't have stringent regulation. And I think the regulation is coming. What I'm referring to here is that these assets present like derivatives. And I don't believe that people are paying attention to this in market. It is a crypto asset that is tied to, let's say, again, real estate. The underlying value of that property if it was shares, the underlying value of the shares is then, you know, informing the value of the crypto asset. And that's ultimately the derivative instrument. So it's very, one needs to be very careful in dealing in these assets that have been tokenized, because this is not the first time we've seen something like this. Before, years ago, there would have been security token offerings, initial coin offerings. Those were incredibly problematic. And they led to 
the use of the Howey test in the USA and what have you. You know, there's a lot about that. In the recent times, we can see that if the FTX exchange has gone down along with SPF, and with that, there's also the FTT token that has been part of the center of this debacle. That looked a lot like a tokenization of stock. So when we discuss tokenization, we must be clear about one thing. You're tokenizing a real-world asset, and that does present like a derivative. And if you're going to do any tokenization, you've got to make sure that the valuation is perfect. So have your auditors come onto it and ensure that your valuation of your token is, is done in the way it's supposed to be done, and the asset reflects that before it goes to market. There are engines that do this for you. However, whether they are licensed or not is another another discussion. And for all members that will listen to this, if you're going to buy an asset that has been tokenized, make sure that the provider is licensed with either an ODP. An ODP being an over-the-counter derivatives provider licensed by the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, right? Absolutely. 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 That's the first thing I would look for. And, um, you know, alternatively, an FSP license, because there may be intermediating transactions. That's the first thing I would look for. And of course, with all providers, with all individuals, licensing is something that we've all come to accept. Of course, one of the problems that you've got uh, with this tokenization, for example, of real estate, you've got this thing called the deeds office, and all transfer of title has to take place at the deeds office, and which we know is not the fastest. So and then, of course, how do you handle potentially millions of people having a share in a property? What's the legal implication of that? Very, very challenging, very, very challenging question to answer up front because we've got no response from the deeds office. Personally, I don't feel like it's going to be that simple. I think the property will inevitably be held in the vehicle and there would be a basis to transfer. So you would need to go, uh, or rather the board, that, that vehicle would have a board or a governing body of sorts. And that board would then decide to transfer the property. But I think inevitably you would hold a fractional share or unit of ownership in another vehicle that owns the property. That's how I see it working in market. A direct ownership share in the in the property, if it is a real estate asset, I don't think that's going to work as clearly as we all think it's going to work. When you look in market, nobody's doing it in the way that we think. Nobody is fractionalizing ownership to a building and then tokenizing it. They are holding it in an entity and then tokenizing the as- the shares. In the um, entity, yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, final question, if you can answer this in 30 seconds. Uh, what are the big trends to watch for in the next two to three years? It's really interesting. We've been discussing them. I think zero-knowledge proofs are going to become increasingly more important to the, the average user because privacy is, is always on the tip of our tongues. I think in perhaps not two to three years, but for retail, for the retail side of the CBDC market, I think five years we could expect something like this or South African citizens being in use of CBDCs. And then perhaps DAOs. I think if we can support the technical side of it, DAOs would also become a, a real part of the fiber that it is that our digital framework in South Africa is run by. Mikhail LaRue of Hanukkah Attorneys, thanks so much for a fascinating discussion on DAOs and CBDCs and everything else. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Kieran. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. 
hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.